Hey, what's up, everyone? You're listening to the podcast edition of The Cutting Room, the show where we talk with industry-leading marketing professionals about their philosophy, process, and pregame before they edit an article live. I am your host, Tommy Walker, and thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Emily Triplett Lentz, the senior content lead at Calendly. In our conversation, we talk about the importance of inclusive language, audience research, and the evolving etiquette of connecting with others through tech. Let's jump right in. Tell me a little bit about your philosophy as it relates to content marketing. Sure, yeah. Content marketing, like, this might be a little spicy. <laughs> um, content marketing is more marketing than content. Content is modifying marketing there, you know, not the other way around. And our goal as content marketers is to like get somebody to do a thing. And I think the profession, it kind of attracts writers and journalists and, and maybe like people who may be really good at telling a story and who enjoy the process of writing. But like the goal is prompting action and like, like it or not, that's what they pay us for. <laughs> and the way you get your visitor to take that action is by understanding deeply who they are and what they want getting crystal clear on that. I think that's really hard to do. And I think it's a really easy step to skip. And I think that's why there's a lot of bad content marketing out there. You're selling a thing, you know, the thing is useful. You wanna say, look at my thing. Here are all of the things my thing can do, you know, buy the thing. But no one cares, no one. No one cares about your thing. They care about what the thing can help them do. They care about being better at their job. They care about being more efficient in their life. Once you figure out who they are and what they care about and what they need, then you can really make some moves. But I think a lot of like what you see as content marketing like fails to like take that critical first step into consideration. Uh, we've actually heard quite a few times on the stream here, nobody cares. Uh, yeah, is that a recurring theme? Yeah, it is. It's a recurring theme. And I think it's interesting. Like, uh, we had a guest a while back. His name is Praveen Kumar. He was a co colleague of mine when we were at Shopify. And he said he keeps a post-it note on his screen that says nobody cares. And oh, that's brilliant. It's an excellent reminder, especially because we, uh, we put so much effort into this stuff. And it's like a micro, tiny moment into somebody's day, right? Like, okay, so here's the question, though. You've worked with some companies that have very broad types of customers, right? Like, boom, Calendly, Basecamp. These are companies that are Swiss army knives of software. You can use it, any number of people can use it for any type of thing. Tell me about the research process that you're using to know deeply what it is that that person needs or wants. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, I've, you know, had the, the luck and pleasure of like sitting on teams where like, that's not always, content's primary job, you know, like yeah. generally there are product marketers and there are, you know, like customer researchers and, and other people that you get to partner with. And there are also like goals set by um, the organization at large, like, okay, everyone this quarter, we're going to focus more on enterprise. We're going to focus more on recruiting buyers. We're speaking primarily to leadership personas there. Okay. Like that's generally enough <laughs> uh, as a starting point to 
then go like as a content marketer and be like, okay, who knows about this? Like you can guess at like what these people care about, but you're not going to know what they care about until you go and talk to them. So the easiest place to start is with the subject matter experts in your own organization. In that case, using that example, um, I would go to my recruiting partners here at Calendly and ask them to tell me about what their problems are <laughs> and like uh, how a tool like this really helps save them time or alleviates their problem in some way. And then like who else outside the organization, customers, like what are they thinking about and worrying about and how has this um, product or service helps solve their problem and go, go talk to them. Don't just make it up. That, that's a big thing. Like making it up. I've seen this time and time again. Now, the reason why I think a lot of us can make this up though, and I'm guilty of this, right? Is you have a hard time sometimes accessing customers, right? Have you experienced this? You have, you can't actually talk to customers because there's so many different layers. Sometimes, like if okay. you want to talk to a customer about a super specific thing, you're like, I need a customer who's using my tool in this really particular way. Like, you know, and it also depends on like internal tools. Like, can you just go in Salesforce and like find somebody like that and, you know, right. go say hi. A, a trick of the trade that um, I've learned from my manager here at Calmy, Jeff Hardison, is like, just go search for where people are talking about you and go search for like, you know, like on Twitter and LinkedIn, like where have people talked about your product in the context in which you need more information? Because if they're already talking about you in public, chances are like, if you reach out and say, hey, you know, thanks for saying this, like, I would love to chat with you about this. Like most of the time, those are your advocates and they're going to say like, yes, absolutely. would love to talk to you. And then you have a source. I love that. And you can sort of avoid the back channel red tape uh, yeah. thing that needs to happen. It's, yeah. it's so straightforward and, and you would think that companies would allow that a little bit more. Um, Okay, I want to switch gears here because one of the things that you talk about quite a bit in public, and I love this, is the uh, accessibility and inclusiveness in content. How does that play into <laughs> Erica says she has yes, one. I told you. My dolly Erica, mug. Yeah, I told Erica <laughs> that uh, Erica was a previous guest. I told her you two would get along quite well. So, uh, that's just further confirmation, Erica. Tell me a little bit about the inclusiveness language and how that plays a role in your overall philosophy and, and the impact that can have on the business overall. This started kind of a couple years ago um, when I was still at Help Scout and um, Megan Chinberg, who is the VP of engineering, posted something about the word cripple in Slack and just like how we use it to describe like feeling hamstrung or like blocked in some way, but it's actually not, it's it's ableist, it's not very sensitive language. And my reaction to that was just like, oh, I hadn't thought of that before, you know? And it's it's my job to kind of think about how we use words. Right. And, and so I just kind of like did a search on our site to see like, have we used that word in our blog? And I think I found a couple instances of that. And I, and I was like, well, you know, what are some other bits and pieces of language we throw around without really much regard for how certain segments of our audience 
feel about them. And so we just kind of came up with a list of um, a bunch of words that like, even, you know, when people use them and they don't mean anything bad by them, like calling a group of people guys, for instance, right. when it's a mixed gender group, a lot of people aren't bothered by that. Um, a lot of people who don't identify as guys aren't bothered by that. Um, I have friends who call me dude, <laughs> you know, like I'm right. not, I'm not bothered by that, but why would I choose words that like alienate some people when I could choose like a better word that doesn't exclude anyone just kind of like brought that into like the style guide and how we thought about using language. And then like the more I got into it, the more I realized like a lot of these words that segments of our audience maybe take issue with, they're kind of lazy language choices anyway. And mm. so like, why wouldn't you choose more precise, specific language that makes your content better? What's good for accessibility and inclusivity is also really good for SEO and like, right. you know, like really, really descriptive alt text or like anchor links and things like that. So there's, there's a lot of overlap there. So yeah, it's just something I try to keep in mind as, as I'm, you know, using languages, using language with audiences who I, you know, I don't want to exclude anyone from. When you were doing your audit of that, how pervasive was it once you saw like across the board, what it was looking like? I think the number was like 72, 72 instances of like words like stupid or lame or, you know, just that don't make you look good anyway. Right. And that there are always more um, precise yeah. synonyms for. And did you find when you were starting to talk to people internally about this that, uh, like there was a level of uh, like, what was the level of education that you had to put out there? And then were you getting any pushback? <laughs> yeah, not so much at Help Scout. Everyone at Help Scout was like, yeah, got it. No problem. Because they're a very <laughs> like thoughtful right. and inclusive culture anyway. I did start to get pushback when I started speaking about it in public. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's just the like, you know, social justice warrior, like, right. <laughs> like this isn't, um, you know, this isn't SEO, this isn't content. Like this is just somebody pushing, you know, a progressive agenda, da, 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 da. So two things, one, like I use a lot of caveats when I'm speaking about this, like I'm not here to police anyone's language and language is tricky. And, you know, I definitely use different language in private with my friends than I would use in front of a crowd or at work. Like there Do are you have to use those caveats to like get people to be more receptive of the language. I think, of, like, I think some people saying? shut down. I think as soon as you tell people like, don't say the word stupid, they're like, you've lost them, you know? So, so I do try to like, <laughs> Tell people, you know, like, this is, this is messy. This is kind of chaotic. And like, yeah. and I am also a human and this is how I think about it. But then like to the real naysayers who are just like, 
why should I care about this at all? Right. Like, because you're no longer alienating people who might give you business. Why would that be such a bad thing? Like, why? Yeah. Why would anybody, like, and and audience, I want you to weigh weigh in on this too, because, like, why would that be such a bad thing or an offensive thing to say be more inclusive? I... I don't know. You'll have to ask my trolls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> um, we're okay. Uh, so this is the section of the show. We're going to switch gears a little bit more. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to say to that. Like, why would people, <laughs> why would people get upset about that? I don't understand. Uh, let's see here. So tell me a little bit about your process when it comes to planning out your content, right? Um, And how are you planning content, doing the research on the content, making it so uh, you are connecting and resonating with the people that you're trying to go after? And I'm particularly interested in this because you have worked for a number of Swiss Army Knife companies. So What's the common things, and then what are the more specific things as you've gone away, gone along the way? You start with what are we trying to get people to do, and who are those people, and what spaces do they hang out in, and what are their pain points, and how can we be helpful to them? And then it's, you know, a thousand different things you have to keep in mind about like, you know, is your business product led? Top down, you know, sales, sales led. Where are the gaps in your current funnel? Do you have, you know, top, mid, bottom of funnel content for customers, prospects, prospects and customers, like existing users, every stage in the journey? And how are you helping those audiences be more successful. So like once you kind of have all of that answered and you should see my like very analog sticky note planning (laughs) process, it's a mess. But like once you have all of those questions answered, then you can kind of start to put a quarter together with your editorial calendar. It's just like, okay, you know, this, this quarter, we're focusing on these themes, and here are, you know, the questions that are as of yet unanswered at these stages, and here's how we're going to promote these particular pieces of content, and you can just kind of, like, build a map from there. More specifically, like, my research process, I watched your show with um, is it Jimmy Daly who was just like, yeah. I hate to say it depends, but it depends. Right. <laughs> um, it really depends on what's being created. Cause like, you know, who is it for and where are they in their journey and like, what are their problems? And my process for like a super top of funnel, like keyword focused, you know, traffic post where there's search volume is going to look very, very different from you know, a customer story that we're creating to try to help a sales team member like close a big deal or something. Where are you falling in the uh, the SEO conversation these days? Because 
because there's a there's a lot of conversation to happen about around this right now. Yeah, like the is it dead? <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah. I, you know, without saying it, yeah, of course. No, the, I mean, short answer: it is not dead. Right. Um, and once again, it really depends on who you are and what yep. you're trying to do at a brand like Calendly that has you know, established, you know, presence and, and authority. Yeah. We are still seeing value out of publishing, you know, SEO focused content that lives in the sort of context in which our product exists. So, you know, software that helps you save time a lot of a lot of stuff around that or you know stuff that is of interest to our icp our, our ideal customer profile like yeah you know recruiters and and salespeople use calendly to schedule meetings really often and so we try to publish the kind of content that those users find value out of and we do still see conversions coming in from that traffic well, that's so, good. I mean, it's, you know, if it's working for you, I would have a very different answer if I was coming, you know, from a brand new startup who was trying to break into a space and compete with like the, you know, the HubSpots and the Shopify's of right. the world. Like, good luck, but I think you're going to have a lot more success with, you know, thought leadership and product specific content that is helping people. What's what's interesting about Calendly, and and I want to know, does this play a role in any of the content you create? The uh, the brand courts some controversy. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and I at one point I fell on one side of the equation, and now I fall on the other side of the equation. I'm pro Calendly now, right? But generally, that that's the movement that yeah, people well, are making. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does yeah. that play a role in any of the stuff that you're creating or like, what's that conversation like Absolutely. as far as? Well, first of all, like coming into Calendly, like I was aware that this is for, and, and for those of you who are um, unfamiliar with Calendly, its primary offering is um, scheduling automation. So you send someone your Calendly link, they can book time on your calendar without having to go back and forth via email a bunch of times. What time works for you? Well, that time doesn't work for me anymore. Blah, blah, blah. It's just like you book a time on their calendar. Some people find the sharing of a calendar link rude. And this is a conversation that is kind of cyclical on social media. Mm -hmm. Someone every six months or so will come around and say something like, how dare, how very dare people. It's a weird flex. <laughs> I, I, was, I mean, to me, I was in that. I was in that part of the. I was in that camp where I'm like, yeah. man, somebody's flexing on me. Yeah, and they and, send me a Calendly link first. And it would, it would be foolish of us at Calendly to ignore the people who are thinking this is rude or this is outside social norms. Yeah, and so. What we want to do as content marketers is like create content that educates people on when you are sharing a scheduling link, how to do that in a 
polite way because there is a rude way to do it. You know, like on LinkedIn, a recruiter comes to me, you know, out of the blue, hasn't bothered to establish a rapport. Hey, I, you know, saw your profile, think you'd be a great fit at our crypto, whatever. (laughs) Here's my Calendly. Like, go away. Like, no, (laughs) that's not the right way to use that. But some people aren't aware. Right. And so the best, most educational content we can create around that is like scheduling etiquette. And so um, shortly after I came on, Jeff Hardison wrote a post about just kind of general like Calmy etiquette. And we also, uh, a writer on my team, Thad Thompson, published an ebook as well about like more in depth. Like if you are using a scheduling link, how can you go about making sure that people will not perceive it as rude? How to um, not be a jack wagon. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. so this latest round of debate um, that happened when Sam Lesson, you know, posted on Twitter about this. And like, it was a real topic of conversation late January, early February, like, is it rude? Is it not rude? We were ready to go. We had content to plug in to those conversations. And that, that's an extreme example of like the power of content, but um, we felt really useful in that moment. Well, it's good. I mean, knowing what, understanding what that conversation is and being preemptive about it instead of ignoring it. And I've worked with brands who prefer to ignore that type of controversy, right? You just pretend it doesn't exist. And then there's like this tone deaf type of approach um, where you're, you're not being plugged into that. So therefore when controversy happens, you don't have the, how to not be a jet wagon. uh, Yeah. Ebook. Right. Um, and I think that's really good. I think that's a great thing to like educate the existing customer base on how to not like how to have decent etiquette, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not pretend like this is not a conversation that's right. happening. Right. And so even after that, um, then I wrote a blog post about how attitudes about scheduling etiquette are shifting over time, like yours, yep. like yours did, because it's, you know, it's kind of in like in a long legacy of like getting used to new ways of communicating things. Yeah. Like, you know, when we all were anti-email and cell phones and, you know, instant message, like we got used to it, you know, and we're going to get used to scheduling links. Tell me a little bit about your pregame before you edit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ideally like pre, pre, game okay (laughs) like i or someone has thought through what they want to get out of this and like build out a brief right so what are we trying to accomplish here who is the audience what do they care about what funnel stage are they in is there an seo component to this and like if so what are the keywords what action do we want people to take all of that who are we going to interview etc etc when i get a draft back and let's assume that the writer got a, a great brief, you know, and turns in their draft. What does my edit look like? Um, the the first read through, um, I, I sit on my hands and people assume I'm being metaphorical when I say that I'm not. 
I literally sit on my hands. Why? Because the temptation to go into copy editing mode is so strong. Like I come from a journalism background. I see, you know, a typo or a, <laughs> anything. And I just, I want to get in there. And that's such a disservice to both you and the writer. And even knowing this, like consciously knowing this, I'll still be afraid that I won't catch something the second time I go through it. And mm. so I'll be like, oh, I'll just, I'll just take care of that right now. Like, no, no. <laughs> like, so that's why I have to sit on my hands. If it's a really good draft, then I go through it again and like maybe suggest moving a few things around here and there, and then maybe go into copy editing mode at, at that stage. Um, but if it needs work, no, no copy edits, just overarching feedback. And sometimes instead of marking up the draft, um, and this comes from working at Loom, I'll record a, a Loom. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll have, I'll have the, draft up in front of me you can see my face and you can see that I'm not mad right and you can hear my tone of voice where I'm just like thanking the person for putting time into this maybe apologizing for not giving clear enough direction and then like explaining that this post is going to need some serious revisiting and here are the major points I want you to consider because if you just get a hugely marked up draft with a bunch of comments in the margin. That's like the most deflating feeling in the world. And deflating people is not your job as an editor. Um, so I've started to hear Loom come up in the conversation a little bit more lately and certainly having that back and forth, um, having a face to the feedback. How was that then received? Because there's certainly like a before Loom and after Loom uh, period of time. Yeah. I mean, before uh, Loom, it would have been a call, okay. right? So at least you have the tone of voice. And maybe like, if you're not using Loom, you can still find time to hop on a synchronous call. I just find Loom yeah. useful because it's like, I'm looking at this right now. And I love it. I, these thoughts are at the top of mind right now. And so I'm just gonna record a video and walk through it and show you me looking at the piece and pointing to specific pieces of it without like highlighting, crossing things out, commenting in the margins. Like when I'm asking you to put what you have in your conclusion, like in the intro and like rethink your H2, you know, like right. it's so much more um, effective. Personal. And, and personal. Yeah. And, yeah. and I do kind of consider myself a gentle editor. Like I yeah. want there to be a trust. I want there to be a rapport. I don't, I don't think like brutality, Right. It, it's not my brand. Like, it, and, and, th and that's not kind of the editor I am. And I do. So it's been a really useful tool in my toolkit um, yeah. to just to, and, and writers have been like, this is awesome. Thank you. You know, like that's the reaction I tend to get. So 
And we talk, we, we hear that a lot too, about the relationship between the editor and author. And, and I really appreciate that. I, I like being able to develop that relationship with the author in a way that makes the most sense for everybody and build that level of trust. Uh, Erica, who's in the chat right now, we talked a lot about that in her episode too. So, um, yeah, good stuff. Okay. Let's jump into the edit. And that's it for the podcast edition of The Cutting Room. If you'd like to watch while Emily edits live, click on the link in the show notes and you'll be brought directly to the edit on our YouTube channel. And if you'd like to attend the next live session, sign up for our email list at thecontentstudio.com forward slash The Cutting Room or by following the link in the show notes. Thank you again and we'll see you in the next one.